Thank you, Jake, for that good reminder this morning about peace, peace with God. And we're going to study this morning, uh, David, in 1 Samuel 17. Why don't you open your Bibles and turn there. We're going to see the results of a man whose faith in God resulted in great peace. And yet, even as Jake said this morning, peace is not the absence of conflict. Uh, it is not the absence of war. It is... Uh, being at peace with your Creator, first and foremost, and then doing whatever you can to be at peace with others. We're going to be in the very familiar passage this morning that many know about, even the youngest ones in our congregation know about David and Goliath. So we're going to continue our study in 1 Samuel 17, chapter 17 this morning. Again, most people are familiar, from the youngest to the oldest, with the story of David and Goliath. Some of you might even have images in your mind of the flannel boards, flannel graphs, or the graphics, or the overhead film projectors, or like with our kids, we read uh, a 10-volume book, and uh, just different images uh, that they have in their illustrations in there of, of this story. And we think we know all of it, but let us come before this chapter once again with humility, even as we look at this this morning, and see David's faith working and uh, living out his trust uh, in God Almighty. Back in chapter 16, verse 13, we've seen Samuel anoint David as king. Then Samuel took the horn of the oil, anointed him in the midst of his brothers. Remember the parade of brothers coming through, David finally the last one. And the Spirit of the Lord came mightily upon David from that day forward. Yet David, as Saul's replacement, he will not assume the role and responsibilities of king until after Saul's death, and that doesn't come until the end of 1 Samuel chapter 31. So we have quite a few more chapters to go as we see the conflict play out between David and Saul. From chapter 16 forward, and of course in chapter 17 this morning, David becomes the key figure. And while he is God's anointed one, again, David does not act as king of Israel until many years unfold. So David was anointed in chapter 16, and what follows in chapter 17 is the account of David and Goliath. Just as Saul's anointing in previous chapters was followed by an event where he demonstrated his fitness or his uh, readiness as leader by defeating the Ammonites, at Jabesh Gilead. Uh, so following David's anointing, in the very next chapter, history records his defeat of Goliath, uh, the leader of the Philistines, the Philistine army, uh, the enemies of Israel. God uses David to demonstrate for us uh, as the one and mainly for the nation uh, as well, but demonstrating that David is the one who has been anointed, he's been chosen, not by man, but by God, and that David is indeed the one qualified and fit to lead Israel and its armies. When looking at the Old Testament, even this chapter especially, as familiar as it is, some would say that this chapter with its many moral lessons is about one man's courage against a giant, human bravery against all odds. The line of questioning then might encourage you to identify the giant or giants around you. 
all while failing to encourage a proper understanding that the giants in your life aren't necessarily your problem. Sin comes from within your own heart, and those around you cannot make you sin, and that those who oppress you are actually the Lord's means by which to build His character in you, not to diminish the trials, obstacles, and difficulties of life, but let's not reduce Scripture to less than it is. This moral virtue of courage is present in this chapter, but that fails to identify the source of that courage. Where does this courage that David displays, where does that come from? Again, courage is not the primary subject. Chapter 17. Others, embracing typology, they search the Old Testament, they find one man, David, putting his own life on the line to confront a formidable opponent. He wins the battle. He saves Israel. David's victory is imputed and reckoned to Israel. This must be about Jesus. That's what this passage is about, right? It's not really about David and Goliath or even David's faith. It's about Jesus. David is a type of Jesus. But such handling of God's holy word reduces Old Testament narratives such as 1 Samuel 17 to fantasy literature. You can make it mean whatever you'd like. The Old Testament, remember what Paul wrote to the Romans in chapter 15, verse 4. Whatever was written in earlier times was written for our instruction. So that through perseverance and encouragement of the Scriptures, we might have hope. And recall also what the Lord told to Samuel in chapter 16, verse 7. As Eliab, the eldest brother, walks in, Samuel thought, wow, surely the Lord's anointed is before him. This must be it, Lord. The Lord said, do not look at his appearance or at the height of his stature, because I have rejected him. For God sees not as man sees. For man looks at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. We're going to see in chapter 17 this morning, man looking at the outward appearance in both main characters. This very next chapter, 17, we're confronted with reality of man's fallen nature as we find Saul and all Israel dismayed and greatly afraid when we get to verse 11 at the appearance and the words of one I'm going to call this morning giant defiant. Chapter 17 reveals many great traits about David's character Trials, troubles, difficulties, generally referred to as the pressures of life, they develop our character, but they also reveal our character. They reveal our deficiencies. Pressure reveals character, both good and bad. Yet godly character can only grow by faith in the living God through the pressure. Pressure reveals character both good and bad. Yet godly character can only grow by faith in the living God through the pressure. Those who face great difficulties are often those that God uses in great ways. We want to be used by God to do great things, put on a cape, grab a sword and a shield, put on a helmet, run out. I'll be the hero, but I don't want to be troubled from my hot pockets and video games in the basement. 
We want our comforts in life. We don't want any trouble along the way. Well, if you want to accomplish great things, uh, you have to live by faith. Remember what James said in chapter 1, verses 2 through 4. Consider it all joy, my brethren, when you encounter various trials, uncomfortable situations that stretch us, the pressure that reveals us for who we are, knowing that the testing of your faith produces endurance or steadfastness. And verse 3 says, and let steadfastness have this perfect work so that you may be mature and complete, lacking in nothing. Trials, test your faith, produce steadfastness, and have a perfect work, a perfect result, maturity, completeness, lacking in nothing. I pray that as each one of us ages and comes to our uh, end of life, that we might not be lacking in nothing but walking in faith. Today we will see David reflect on what God has done in the past in order to live under the multifaceted pressures of his present situation. David is a man that God has prepared for greatness, but not through the formal schools of law, finance, political science, but through the middle of nowhere, pasture in Bethlehem. Shepherding dumb sheep out in the fields. When Samuel came to anoint the next king, David's father, Jesse, had said, Well, there remains yet the youngest, and behold, he is tending the sheep. 1 Samuel 16, verse 11. Who would have thought that David's great preparation to train him, to prepare him to be Israel's king, would be through the most mundane of job responsibilities? David trusted in the Lord, walking by faith in union with his Savior. You and I are to read this chapter and see for ourselves an example of a man with faith in the God of Israel. As we are convicted this morning of our own faithlessness, may our Lord's word motivate each one of us again as we study his word routinely. May it motivate us once again to live by faith in God and not by what man sees, not by what you can perceive or you can see, but live by faith. Look how now chapter 17 begins, about 17 miles or so south southwest of Jerusalem. Verse 1, now the Philistines, Philistines, however you want to pronounce it, the Philistines gathered their armies for battle. And they were gathered at Soka, which belongs to Judah. And they encamped between Soka and Azekah in Ephes-Demim. Here we have Saul and Jonathan. You need to be reminded that they had previously defeated the Philistines back in chapter 14. God gave a great victory under Jonathan, Saul's son, over the Philistines. But now the Philistines haven't gone away by any means. They only retreated out of Israel's immediate territory for a time. Of course, now they've regrouped, and they're back for more into the land, challenging Israel once again. Look at verse 2 and 3. Saul and the men of Israel were gathered and camped in the valley of Elah and drew up in battle array to encounter the Philistines. And the Philistines stood on the mountain on one side, while Israel stood on the mountain on the other side. 
with the valley between them. So here we have the armies of the Philistines, the Israelites, lined up on opposing hills with a valley in between. It's two separate mountains. Of course, these Middle Eastern mountains aren't exactly what you might see out west, more of the rolling hills of uh, uh, the Appalachians at the most. Of course, separated again by the valley where they would then rush down and engage in battle, ready to descend, do that battle in that intervening valley. Verse 4, then a champion came out from the armies of the Philistines named Goliath from Gath, whose height was six cubits and a span. He had a bronze helmet on his head, and he was clothed with scale armor, which weighed 5,000 shekels of bronze. He also had bronze greaves on his legs and a bronze javelin slung between his shoulders. The shaft of his spear was like a weaver's beam, and the head of his spear weighed 600 shekels of iron. His shield carrier walked before him. This is indeed quite the giant of a man, right? Nine and a half feet tall. 125 pounds of armor. He's got a bronze javelin slung across his back between his shoulders, made of bronze. Uh, if you've got a piece of wrought iron at home, that's maybe the length of a javelin. It's heavy, and it's not going very far. This man has a bronze javelin, not like a field, a track and field javelin, heavy. His spear, it's like a weaver's beam. You know, just imagine, I'm shy of six foot myself, three and a half feet taller than me even, and a spear that probably goes even taller than him. This spear, 15, 16 pounds just on the spearhead. Most of us have a tough time going to the bowling alley, grabbing a 16-pound bowling ball and sending it down the aisle. 16 pounds just on the end of his spear. Quite the armament that this man has. Of course, he even has a Another man walking before him, carrying a shield. You can imagine how big this shield must be for a nine-foot man to be able to see over it, yes, but to be protected yet. It takes one guy just to carry that. Some of you might be familiar with uh, Shaquille O'Neal. He's seven feet tall and was 325 pounds in his prime. Well, Goliath is two and a half feet taller, likely even heavier than that, than the 325 He's not just a tall and skinny man. He's a massive man to be clad with such heavy armor, massive weapons of combat. His defenses are awesome. His own strength and power are significant. We're told later on that he's been a warrior from his youth, like the gym rats that start in junior high, and they spend all the time in the gym working out from their youth, building muscle. His armament, it's almost like an ancient tank. Multi-layers of defense, a shield-bearer going before him, again, carrying that shield. He's free to throw his javelin, thrust his spear, wield his sword. In the sight of man, the perception of man, formidable. Verse 8, he stood and shouted to the ranks of Israel and said to them, Why do you come out to draw up in battle array? Am I not the Philistine and you? Servants of Saul, choose a man for yourselves and let him come down to me. If he is able to fight with me and kill me, then we will become your servants. But if I prevail against him and kill him, then you shall become our servants and serve us. 
Again, the Philistine said, I defy the ranks of Israel this day. Give me a man that we may fight together. Give me what I demand. It's almost as if Goliath is saying there's no need for our armies to engage in needless bloodshed. Just pick one guy to represent Israel. I'll represent the Philistines. No advantage there, is there? Two of us come and fight it out. As you might expect, there are no takers in Israel's army. We'll learn that they've been standing around for quite a while, timid, fearful. Verse 11, when Saul and all Israel heard these words of the Philistine, they were dismayed and greatly afraid. They weren't just like, well, yeah, let's think about it. No, they were greatly afraid, dismayed. Their hearts had melted, if you will. It's easy for us. With the hindsight, we've read the last few verses of this chapter. We know how it turns out. We can scoff at the timidity of Saul, his army. But remember, we're all heroes when we read these historical events or we watch a movie and we know in advance the glorious outcome of the good guy wins. We charge out with our shields, our swords, Thor's hammer, battle axes, guns ablazing, ready to take on the world. It's a very different thing in the real world when you don't know how the day will end. All Israel is dismayed and greatly afraid. So who's going to come out, take up the challenge of a man who's seen as one could come down at any minute like Samson and take on a thousand soldiers all by himself if he chose? Who's going to do that? Well, the result obviously is a stalemate. Nobody's anxious on either side to launch the attack, and this goes on for quite some time, as we'll see in the forthcoming verses. Now, verses 12 through 16, they reintroduce us to David and his family, as last seen in Ruth chapter 4, verses 18 to 22, and of course, 1 Samuel 16, as we've already mentioned, as Samuel went to Jesse's house and anointed David. It just reminds us of who David is, the youngest and by default, physically probably the smallest, and also just a mere shepherd, not the biggest warrior like giant defiant. Look at verse 12. Now David was the son of the Ephrathite of Bethlehem in Judah, whose name was Jesse. He had eight sons, and Jesse was old in the days of Saul, advanced in years among men. The three older sons of Jesse had gone after Saul to the battle, and the names of his three sons who went to the battle were Eliab, the firstborn, and the second to him, Abinadab, and the third, Shammah. David was the youngest, Now the three oldest followed Saul. But David went back and forth from Saul to tend his father's flock at Bethlehem. Again, being a day's walk away from Bethlehem, David had been traveling back and forth potentially to, to visit or to provide supplies with his brothers. We'll find out in a second. It's been almost, oh, been over a month, actually. So maybe David's going for the first time. We don't know for sure. But they have yet to engage in actual fighting and provide report back uh, to his father, Jesse. David was sent out with a gift, as we'll see here in a second, to learn of their well-being. Look at verse 16. The Philistine came forward morning and evening for 40 days to take his stand 
morning and evening, morning and evening. Can you imagine? 40 days. 80 times. Twice a day, 40 days, 80 times. This guy is coming out. I defy the ranks of Israel. It's no wonder these guys' hearts had melted. Of course, you and I would be in the same state of mind as the rest of Saul's army if we had to put up with a giant defiant presenting himself and his boastful challenge so often and incessantly. Again, neither army sees itself with a decisive advantage, so as to just charge in and be done with it. The Philistines are quite intimidating. Of course, they think, hey, with Goliath on our side, it's only a matter of time before the Israelites come and willingly surrender themselves. We just sit this one out. Look at verse 17. <clears throat> then Jesse said to David, his son, Take now for your brothers an ephah of this roasted grain and these ten loaves and run to the camp of your brothers. Bring also these ten cuts of cheese to the commander of their thousand. And look into their welfare, into the welfare of your brothers, and bring back news of them. For Saul and they and all the men of Israel are in the valley of Elah fighting with the Philistines. And again, just as we might send care packages to our loved ones in the military today, uh, Jesse, their father, sends David a day's journey away to the valley of Elah with the supplies for his sons as well as a gift for their commander. Ten cuts of cheese. Not something you're going to get in 40 days standing out there with the military. A little gift. Take care of my sons. All right, so the scene has been set. The background has been hung. Verse 20. So David, he rose early in the morning, left the flock with the keeper, took the supplies and went as Jesse had commanded him. And he came to the circle of the camp while the army was going out in battle array, shouting the war cry. So at this point, it's just like two opposing teams in high school shouting from one set of bleachers to the other across the valley. Israel and the Philistines drew up in battle array, army against army. And then David left his baggage in the care of the baggage keeper, ran to the battle line and entered in order to greet his brothers. And as he was talking with them, behold, the champion, the Philistine from Gath named Goliath, was coming up from the army of the Philistines and he spoke these same words that we read already. And David heard them. Verse 24, when all the men of Israel saw the man, they fled from him and were greatly afraid. Second time now in this chapter, we're told of the result of faithless men hearing the words and seeing the sight of this ancient war machine. So David shows up, and in God's perfect timing, he makes it to the front lines with his brothers after entrusting the supplies of the baggage keeper just in time for one of Goliath's twice-a-day motivational speeches in defiance of the living God challenging Israel's army. Of course, David hears giant defiant for himself and sees the men of Israel fleeing in great fear. And this bothers David. It gets under his skin. Verse 25, we're given a little more background. The men of Israel said, Have you seen this man who is coming up? Surely he is coming up to defy Israel, speaking of Goliath. And it will be that the king will enrich the man who kills him with, one, great riches, two, give him his daughter, and three, make his father's house free in Israel. Saul has promised three rewards, and you would think this would be enough to find somebody in the thousands of the tens of thousands of the ranks of the armies 
of Israel to come forward. I'll take some money. I'll uh, marry into the royal family. My family would be well off if we didn't have to pay taxes or serve in the military or any other public service. But that's it. All you have to do is take on Goliath and survive. Riches, royal connections, life of ease await. But you can't just stick your neck out there and take one for the team and let your family get the money and uh, your <laughs> the king's daughter become a widow and let your family be tax-free. You have to actually win. You have to cut this man down. You must defeat Goliath. In the coming verses, especially verse 26, we see David's spiritual aptitude. And let's not gloss over this too quickly. Read verse 26. After hearing the giant, after hearing Goliath, and then hearing the reward offer made, David spoke to the men who were standing by him, so he's with his brothers and the other men, saying, what will be done exactly for the man who kills this Philistine and takes away the reproach from Israel? For who is this uncircumcised Philistine that he should taunt the armies of the living God? We see a young man who fears God, who does not fear man. Look at verse 27. The people answered him in accord, in accord with the, this word, saying, Thus it will be done for the man who kills him, as we saw in verse 25. So David identifies Goliath, not just as a giant, but as a godless man outside the covenant promises of Israel. He's an uncircumcised fellow. He's a man outside God's covenant people. And he is taunting the armies of the living God. Keep in mind here, Goliath is not just challenging only the army. He's challenging God, the God of Israel himself as the army stands in representation of God Almighty. So again, the people repeat David, in for David's hearing, the rewards delineated. But now we interrupt this program to bring you some family drama. Verse 28, isn't this how it is at times? Verse 28, now Eliab, his oldest brother, heard when he spoke to the men, and Eliab's anger burned against David. And he said, why have you come down? And with whom have you left those few sheep in the wilderness. I know your insolence and the wickedness of your heart. You have come down in order to see the battle. Ah, you're on the cusp of accomplishing some great feat, and a family member jumps in to put you in your place. I've done it. I've also received it. I'm an older brother. Family squabbles between older and younger brothers. Nothing new, are they? My own sons probably squabble. Yep. In Eliab, we come upon David's first obstacle of the day, testing his faith. His pretentious oldest brother, accusing him of mouthing off. And of course, Eliab, as the oldest brother, he takes David's actions as a personal insult. So before Eliab can be made to look like a fool... Look like a coward for not standing up to Goliath himself. He attempts to shut down David before anyone discovers that this loudmouth braggart kid over here 
This boy is his brother. Doesn't want to be embarrassed. But again, remember what David said in verse 26. Who is this uncircumcised Philistine that he should taunt the armies of the living God? Goliath's taunting has gotten under David's skin. It bothers him. But Eliab, what bothers him? He's riled up because David is upstaging his older brother. Personal insults. Boy, I take that personally. But David, motivated by the honor of God. Eliab, in his pride, he even claims to know David's heart motivations. His insolence, his wickedness, just hoping to see some fight. He belittles David as a mere observer. You're just here to see a fight. Not like me, I'm a warrior, I'm dressed, I'm ready for battle, I have my armament here, I'm ready to charge down the mountain. But you haven't for 40 days. Calls David really good for nothing more than just getting back to those few sheep. Go back to the wilderness where you can't bother anybody, get out from underfoot, go on. Yet David is not thin-skinned like his older brother so as to be humiliated or personally insulted. David's not insulted by his older brother. He's not deterred. He remains steadfast, but not in defense of his own name or his own character, his own reputation, even his own life, as we'll see in a minute. He is moved by the honor of God. But David, verse 29, but David said, what have I done now? Was it not just a question? You know, how many times we said that to our siblings? You know, Give me a break. I'm just asking a question. Verse 30, then he turned away from Eliab to another and said the same thing. What exactly is going to be done to this man who taunts the armies of the living God, this uncircumcised fellow? And the people answered the same thing. Riches, marriage, tax-free, libertarian utopia. People answered the same thing as before. Again, David's answer to his brother, it reveals his heart. Rather than defending his action, he shows that he is moved by the honor of God as he immediately ignores his brother. He maintains his focus. He returns to his line of questioning that he spoke even in verse 26, just to make sure he's got his facts straight. You can almost picture the resolve on David's face by this point. Wheels are turning. Having already determined in his heart, his mind, his soul, he's going to do something about this giant defiant. I'm going to take this guy out. This is a serious business. This is a serious matter. The God of Israel has been challenged by a godless Philistine. Let's do something about this, boys. Let's go. Of course, word travels fast about a visiting young man willing to do what no one else in the army has been willing to do. After 80 defiant boasts over the past 40 days, verse 31, when the words which David spoke were heard, they were told them to Saul, and he sent for him. David said to Saul, let no man's heart fail on account of him. Your servant will go and fight with this Philistine. Here stands more than just a young shepherd. David is a man of tremendous faith. What is he saying to the king? Do not be faithless. I'll go and fight this giant defiant. Verse 33, 
When Saul said to David, then Saul said to David, you are not able to go against this Philistine to fight with him, for you are but a youth. Well, he, he's been a warrior from his youth. In Saul, we come upon David's second obstacle of the day, his faithless king, doubting David's ability to fight, let alone come out victorious. After hearing reports of a lone, brave man who might be able to take care of this Goliath and claim the promised rewards, Saul was likely disappointed at the sight of David, most likely dressed as a shepherd still. Zero battle training or experience. He didn't come with his rifle slung across his body armor and mags all loaded up and his helmet and night goggles and knee pads and tactical gloves and ready to go. Probably still has his pouch slung across his shoulder, shepherd's clothes on. Not really uh, something to be excited about. This guy's going to really take him out. Saul's probably very... Very disappointed at the sight. Contrast that against Goliath, and you can see why Saul might see no possibility but failure. This kid is going to die. Yet here stands more than a young, sightseeing, food-hauling shepherd boy. David, again, I'll say it, is a a man of tremendous faith. He's neither deterred by his oldest brother trying to humiliate him and put him in his place, He is not deterred either by the king. When the king of Israel himself tells him he doesn't have a chance, David's simple answer in verse 34 and following reveals the depth of the faith of David that is playing out as he encounters each obstacle and walks by faith. But David, again, even as we had in verse 29, but David resolved, you will not deter me, said to the king, Your servant, respectfully, your servant was tending his father's sheep. When a lion or a bear came and took a lamb from the flock, I went out after him, chased him, and attacked him. Just bang any pots together and kind of hope he'd drop the lamb. Chase after him and attacked him and rescued him, rescued this lamb from his mouth. When he rose up against me, I seized him by his beard, struck him, and killed him. Your servant has killed both the lion and the bear, and this uncircumcised Philistine will be like one of them, since he has taunted the armies of the living God. And David continued in verse 37, the Lord who delivered me from the paw of the lion and from the paw of the bear, he will deliver me from the hand of this Philistine. David recalls God's faithful deliverance in his past encounters with beasts as deadly or more so as giant defiant. David's memory of the Lord's work in previous trials strengthens David's resolve today. So what does he tell the king? Don't give it a second thought, King Saul. I'll just go after this Philistine. The Lord will deliver me as he did from the bear and the lion. No big deal. On the grand scheme of things, this guy's pretty intimidating, but you can see that David has been grown and trained and built over time. If David was coming out of his mom's basement from playing video games, this would be an unconquerable task. But he's been out in the field, taking on the bear, taking on the lion. God has been challenging him to 
take on greater and greater responsibilities. Note the end of verse 36. Since he has taunted the armies of the living God. For David, the issue at hand is the unacceptable taunting by Goliath of God and his armies. He is jealous for the honor of God of Israel. And he has the faith to step forward. Handle this unacceptable situation. God uses these circumstances as they are going to unfold to demonstrate David's character as one whose confidence in the living God makes him qualified to be king. You want to accomplish great things? Great faith in God. Look at the end of verse 37. And Saul said to David, Go, and may the Lord be with you, buddy. You're going to need it. May the Lord be with you. How else is the king supposed to answer a man so jealous for the honor of God, determined to step forward and confident that God will deliver me from the hand of the Philistine? Having seen Saul's character in previous studies, you can almost see Saul calculating how fast can his men pack up and be ready to lead the retreat upon David's death. Verse 38. Then Saul clothed David with his garments and put a bronze helmet on his head, and he clothed him with armor. David girded his sword over his armor and tried to walk, for he had not tested them. So David said to Saul, I cannot go with these, for I have not tested them. And David took them off. He put them off himself. He didn't wait for somebody to take them off. He took his stick in his hand and chose for himself five smooth stones from the brook put them in the shepherd's bag, which he had, even in his pouch, and his sling was in his hand, and he approached the Philistine. In the expectations of man, we come upon David's third obstacle of the day, these untested defensive armor and the untested offensive weapon. He's never used, yet alone refined, the application of these untested tools. and seen the great disadvantage of trying to live up to the expectations of others. David takes the armor off from himself. He said, I can get this off of me. Can't go this way. David turns back to the same instruments used previously by the Lord, through his hand, yes, uh, to slay the lion and the bear. He's got his staff. He's got his sling. He's got a shepherd's bag. Did you note that? Which he had with him prepared every day. So, without seeking further permission from Saul, David sheds the armor given him. He approaches the Philistine more confidently with his own proven weapons of choice. Look at verse 41. Then the Philistine came on and approached David with the shield-bearer in front of him. When the Philistine looked and saw David, he disdained him, and he was, for he was but a youth and ruddy with a handsome appearance. The Philistine said to David, Am I a dog? that you come to me with sticks. And the Philistine cursed David by his gods. And the Philistine also said to David, Come to me, and I will feed your flesh to the birds of the sky and the beasts of the field. No fear of God. In Goliath we come upon David's fourth and yet likely most formidable obstacle of the day. The prideful, cursing, insulted, killing machine, threatening Giant, defiant, you sent out an armorless shepherd boy with a stick? What is this, a prank? Where's the hidden cameras? Am I on candid camera? 
Consider Goliath's short-sighted, prideful selfishness. He's merely boasting of feeding David's flesh to the birds. Contrast that with David's faithful confidence, not in himself but in God, to feed the flesh of both Goliath and the rest of the Philistine army to the beasts of the field, the birds of the air, but beyond that with a greater purpose, that all the earth may know the battle belongs to the living God of Israel. What does verse 45 and following say? Then David said to the Philistines, you come to me with a sword and a spear and a javelin, but I come to you in the name of the Lord of hosts, the God of the armies of Israel, from whom, whom you have taunted. This day the Lord will deliver you up into my hands, and I will strike you down and remove your head from you. And I will give the dead bodies of the army of the Philistines this day to the birds of the sky and the wild beasts of the earth, that all the earth may know that there is a God in Israel. And that all this assembly may know that the Lord does not deliver by sword or by spear. For the battle is the Lord's, and he will give you into our hands. David is not timidly second-guessing his life choices. I don't know about what I'm doing here. He's not sidestepping the confrontation, mumbling under his breath. Well, Lord, my mouth's gotten me into quite a pickle this go-around. Lord, just deliver me this once. Lord, if you only get me through this. Please don't let Goliath crush me. No. David is proclaiming for all to hear the battle is the Lord's, and he will give you into our hands. By faith, David considers the battle as good as done. He's about to run directly toward Goliath to shut down this giant defiant once and for all. Verse 48, Then it happened when the Philistine rose, came, and drew near to meet David that David ran quickly toward the battle line to meet the Philistine. And David put his hand into his bag and took from it a stone and slung it and struck the Philistine on his forehead. And the stone sank into his forehead so that he fell on his face to the ground. Goliath severely underestimates the sight of this young, rugged-looking shepherd boy, not to mention the living God that is working in and through David. As Goliath swaggers out, you can almost picture it, ignoring David's threat of beheading. What's he going to do? Hit me with a stick until my neck gets cut? He doesn't have a sword. David rushes upon him. It's like, whoa, this guy's moving pretty quick. It's like David can't wait for God to give him the victory. I just can't wait to cut off his head. I'm running for it. To top it all off, David hasn't even loaded his sling yet. Do you notice that? He runs toward Goliath without one in the chamber. He's not even loaded. Again, see what bold confidence that results from David's faith in God? He has lived with that sling and that pouch, and he knows exactly what rocks to pick. He's been doing a lot of rock chucking in the pastures. He knows what he's doing. We can surmise that David had thought through and determined some simple strategy to behead Goliath. He already proclaimed that he was going to behead him. He knew he didn't have the tools. Well, let's knock him out, and then we'll use his own sword to behead him. So what a swift victory. It's as if the battle's over before it begins. David comes running down, avoiding rocks, 
loads his sling, starts whirling it around while navigating that rough terrain, trying to maintain that purposeful course going right for the giant. He sends the stone, some say you can send them up to 100 miles an hour to its desired target, boom, over. Folds forward, Goliath's skull is broken, knocks him out, folds to the ground like a cheap tent. Whether a shepherd boy, a craftsman that is skilled, a homemaker, an office worker, do not underestimate the value of making the most of your downtime. Sling a stone at some target while you're sitting out watching the sheep. You might someday encounter a giant. Verse 50, thus David prevailed over the Philistine with a sling and a stone, and he struck the Philistine and killed him, but there was no sword in David's hand. Then David ran and stood over the Philistine and took his sword and drew it out of its sheath and killed him and cut off his head with it. When the Philistines saw that their champion was dead, they fled. Again, you see the actions of David. Knocks him out. He's on the ground. That was easier than I thought. All right, see you guys. No, he runs upon Goliath. He goes, I've got to finish the task here. David takes Goliath's sword. He possibly runs him through the back as he lays lifeless on the ground, and then he cuts off his head. Warfare is brutal. There's no way to sugarcoat this. And yet we see how fearless David is. Even later, he's going to stand before Saul with what in hand? Goliath's head, carrying it in his hand. Look at verse 52. The men of Israel and Judah rose and shouted and pursued the Philistines as far as the valley and to the gates of Ekron. And the slain Philistines lay along the way to Shireen and even to Gath and Ekron. The sons of Israel returned from chasing the Philistines and plundered their camps. And then David took the Philistines' head and brought it to Jerusalem, but he put his weapons in his tent. The Philistines, they flee in a panic. While Israel and Judah rise, shout, pursue, they slay the Philistines all along the way, Gath and Ekron plundering their camps. Meanwhile, David is there plundering Goliath's weapons, places them in his tent. When the dust settles, we're told that David takes Goliath's head to Jerusalem when everything's said and done as we wrap up the chapter here. We don't know for sure why. Scripture doesn't say. Could be possibly as a warning. Maybe he got a stake. Stuck it in the ground, put Goliath's head on top. Hey, Jebusites, I'm coming for you. Someday I'm going to conquer Jerusalem, which he does do in 2 Samuel chapter 5. Just as a side note, we get the details of Saul observing David in action in verses 55 and following. He inquires of Abner and he sends for David and questions him, trying to find out who is this guy, what's his family like. Verse 55, now when Saul saw David going out against the Philistine, he said to Abner, the commander of the army, Abner, whose son is this young man? And Abner said, by your life, O king, I have no clue. I do not know. The king said, you, inquire whose son this youth is. So David returned, winning David returned from killing the Philistine. Abner took him and brought him before Saul and the Philistine's head in his hand. Saul said to him, whose son are you, young man? And David answered, I am the son of your servant, Jesse, the Bethlehemite. 
Now, back in chapter 16, you recall that David had already become Saul's musician and had been in the presence of Saul a handful of times at least. But we have to remember that as king, there's many servants around you, and it could be that just David may not have been in uh, Saul's presence for a while. And if David is a young man, it's quite possible that his physical appearance has changed, as is common in the adolescent age, to uh, grow uh, up and look differently. Otherwise, we just don't know why uh, Saul is trying to find out who this kid is. But of course, Abner, he knows nothing about David. He's not been in Abner's army. Who is this guy going out against Goliath? Abner, you probably know this guy, right? I mean, he's pretty good. He's pretty swift. Stone, sword, done. Doesn't know anything. Either way, all that aside, Saul has to make good on his promised rewards. So he'd better learn all he can about this future son-in-law of his. What's his family like? Is the royal family going to be embarrassed? So how does this potential son-in-law present himself to the king? I can't leave behind Goliath's head. What am I going to do with it? Just will bring proof that I'm the one who beheaded him. Yes, king, what can I do for you? So David answers the royal summons with Goliath's head in hand, dripping blood, possibly also carrying Goliath's sword. Uh, Took it off him, maybe. You imagine the faces on those watching David as he made his way through the crowds to King Saul. Here's this young guy with this massive head. If the guy was nine feet tall, the guy's head had to have been a melon. I mean, the Johnson family gets blamed for having huge heads, but this guy's head had to have been huge. And he's just kind of carrying it, you know, probably a 20, 20 pound. I don't know how much it weighed. Blood, flesh, brains, and bones all going up to the king. Gruesome. In the end, we see here that God has set apart David as the next anointed king of Israel. And now God has made David a legend in his own lifetime. How? Why? By his faith. Demonstrated in confidence. Faith in God. Confidence in God. God had prepared. He had taught. He had molded David to trust the Lord becoming a fearless man to confront Goliath alone. No one else came out with him. It's no wonder that the Israel army follows David as the subsequent chapters unfold. And in all that David does, he's going to prosper by the blessing of the living God in whom David trusts. Just a few observations to note. Many of these overlap and run together. We need to keep in mind, verses 4 through 11, Satan can present awesome and frightening opponents to God's people. Yet even then, we must not judge by outward appearance. Instead, walk by faith. What did chapter 16 teach us? Do not see as man does not, God does not judge as man sees. God sees the heart. Secondly, how has the honor of God moved you in the past to faithfully obey? How has the honor of God moved you in the past to faithfully obey? Does the honor of God motivate you today? When your coworkers use your Lord's and Savior's name in vain, do you say something? Anything? Third, even well-meaning family, friends, even older experienced leaders, King Saul, 
they can become op opponents, obstacles at times. We need to remember that our confidence must be in the Lord alone. It can't be partially in the Lord and partially in what others think of you. What does God think? What does His Word say? How should I live? Fourth, be encouraged by what God has previously accomplished in and through you. Again, looking to the past, see what God has accomplished. As your faith grows, so ought your works be growing in preparation for the next challenge. You're still breathing, all of you sitting here this morning. You have a challenge ahead of you today, tomorrow, this week, this month, this year. How are you growing in your faith? Today's challenge, today's challenges, as they are multiple, prepare you for tomorrow. Fifth, conflict, difficulty, and obstacles. They are all routine components of God's plan for developing his servants. Goliath's defiance against the armies of God is the same principle as these defiant lions, bears coming to take a lamb from the flock. Goliath was going to take his from the army. As your life continues, as you age, as we all grow, the degree of conflict, difficulty, obstacles, they grow in proportion to your faithful handling of each immediate trial. How are you handling today's trials? Is your faith growing in the handling of the struggles of life today? Then you will be given greater challenges tomorrow. As a good friend, co-worker that I had years ago said, you can rest in the rest home if you make it there. You can rest in the rest home, but now you got to live, walk by faith, engage the trials. Sixth, to accomplish future legendary feats of faithfulness, you must be faithful in the responsibilities that God has given you for today especially when no one is around to watch you. Was anyone around to watch David take the lion, to take the bear, or to even see how far away he could get from his target to sling the stone and be accurate in his hit? Nobody's watching. It's a bunch of dumb sheep. They're not even watching out for themselves. He's got to be there. You want to do something legendary in the future? Be faithful today especially when no one is watching you. Seventh, paralysis by analysis. We've probably heard this before. Forty days sitting there. What is that actually? Well, it's really looking for a way to avoid the battle. Hey, Eric, you made a decision yet? No, I'm still calculating the numbers, trying to figure out a good strategy. In reality, just... Trying to avoid the battle. Determined to glorify God in all that you do. Identifying the right goal according to God's revealed word. And then entrust the journey's details to the Lord. Determined to glorify Him and move forward. Move your feet. Eighth, be prepared every day. Staff, sling, pouch, which he had. David didn't know when he was taking food out to his brothers in the army of Israel, that this would be one of the most momentous days in his life. Some 3,000 years later, every child in Sunday school knows the story of how the original food delivery servant beheaded the giant. Be prepared every day, trusting the Lord that he will use you 
and can use you for his glory. Number nine, in all victories, regardless of prudently listening to a multitude of counselors, Eliab, family, Saul, the king, either way, the battle always comes from the Lord. Seek counsel. Seek wisdom. I'm not saying go it alone and just throw caution to the wind, but there comes a point in time where you have to discern the counsel you've been given and act, move forward by faith. And lastly, just in general, pursue life with an aggressiveness born out of a faithful confidence in the Lord. Pursue life with an aggressiveness born out of a faithful confidence in the Lord. Committees cannot do battle with the giant while balancing the opinions of all. Serve the Lord with a certain level of abandon. Be like George Mueller. Be willing to take that chance. Give thanks for the meal that you're about to serve the orphans before the meal even arrives. That's faith. Again, don't jump out of a plane without a parachute. When you ride your motorcycle, put a helmet on. We take precautions. But are you living boldly? Are you living in faith? Engaging in that endless game of, well, what if this and what if that is never going to take the risk out of living by faith. There's always some level of risk living by faith. You don't know everything. We don't know how the day is going to turn out. If you have no risk, you don't need faith, now do you? If you knew everything, would you have to trust God for today? If you knew how every day from now till your death was going to unfold, would you need to trust God for it all? Oh, I know how it's going to go. All is good. David, he's charging down the mountain. He's putting his own life at risk. That's what the life of faith can look like. That's why there is a David here dealing with Goliath. No one else in the armies of Israel had that kind of faith. No one there was willing to put their own life at risk. But it all comes down to obedience. Obey the Lord with abandon. Obey. Do. Act. Be doers of the word. Not just knowers. Be doers and live by faith. Go all out with nothing but God to provide the victory and the deliverance. Let's close in prayer. Father in heaven, thank you for your word. Once again, seen here in the Old Testament, revealing the wonder of your sovereign plans to mold, to shape, to mature the faith of an obscure, out-of-the-way shepherd boy and even each and every one of us through your daily challenges that you bring our way, that challenge us, cause us to trust in you. Thank you for giving us a glimpse into a portion of your work in David's life, those endless hours caring for the sheep, being faithful with little, progressing into larger tasks, learning to trust you, Dealing with the trials, the problems, the dangers, learning that you are sufficient. You can bring the victory. You can bring deliverance. Preparing David for what he did not know, yet preparing him for exactly what you had sovereignly planned for him. 
Father, help us to learn today from these lessons of history. Lord, may we be men and women of faith to entrust everything and everyone into your hands. Lord, it is actually no risk at all. Help us to grasp even more fully, more deeply, the importance of obedience to the clear commands of your word. Lord, we know what your will is. Help us to live it out by faith. May we be willing to do that with the little things of life, the day-to-day responsibilities. Remind us, even as your servants going about our daily tasks and jobs, may we see these in light of who you are and that in your service we would draw on your strength to accomplish your work. You're a God who must be honored by the faithful obedience of each and every individual believer. Lord, may we, as a local body of Jesus Christ here at GCF, desire faithful obedience in our own lives and in the lives of those around us as we walk together arm in arm, that we would be careful to give you all the honor, to give you the glory through faithful, obedient hearts. And Lord, may the testimony of this faithful obedience that you wrought in each one of us, may that be used by you in great ways. Even as Jake mentioned this morning, Lord, the days are dark. May our testimony be even brighter. From the littlest things to the greatest things, may we bring glory, eternal glory, to the name of Jesus Christ our Lord, in whose name we pray. Amen.